Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Catherine Hume. Catherine is the Vice President of Strategy with Integrate AI. Catherine, welcome back to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. It's wonderful to be here, Sam, one of my favorite podcasts. Well, you are one one of my most favorite people, so we are in the right place. And we are going to be talking about, broadly speaking, the topic of uh, ethics and and fairness and trust in uh, AI. But before we do that, uh, for those who haven't had a chance to listen to the uh, wonderful podcast that we did a while back, I don't even remember when, but why don't you do a kind of a, a brief uh, intro and then we'll refer people back to uh, that previous show in the show notes. Yeah, for sure. So as mentioned right now, I'm heading up strategy for a Toronto-based startup called Integrate AI. So we work with large consumer enterprises, so the retail banks and telcos and retailers of the world and help them do a better job providing relevant experiences for their customers by applying machine learning into their customer engagement stacks. And prior to that, I worked at a New York City-based machine learning research lab called Fast Forward Labs. That's actually now part of Cloudera. Um, that's where we last met. Um, and you know, during my time there, I, I was also working with the enterprise and sort of sitting between the world of academic research and the world of applied machine learning in the enterprise to help companies get a handle on what was actually ready for prime time as they tried to sort through the hype in the space and, you know, take them from the point of prototype conceptualization to actual scaled application. Um, I guess the other thing to mention, and it is relevant for my background for this context, is that I, uh, I have a doctorate in comparative literature and an undergrad in theoretical mathematics. And so I sort of bring a, a mixture of philosophy and epistemology, so the theories of knowledge, to my thinking around applied mathematics and machine learning. That's been um, a, a decent toolkit for my thinking about ethics. And it's made for some very interesting conversations, I will say. Um, so jumping into this conversation around ethics, you recently uh, spearheaded the development of a, a white paper uh, on what you called responsible AI in the consumer enterprise, which is a really interesting, uh, a really interesting paper. What bucket do you put that in? Do you think of it as uh, ethics or fairness or trust? There are a lot of words that we kind of throw around when thinking about some of the ethical issues with regards to AI as applied to the enterprise in particular. How do you kind of think through all that? It's a great question. And there are so many terms being thrown around these days as basically we start to grapple with the implications of bringing machine learning algorithms from the research lab into the real world. And, you know, they sort of hit up against the surprising uh, realities of human behavior and how human behavior gets reflected in data and then how algorithms basically recycle some of these reflections and refractions into products that can have sometimes surprising results. So that's sort of a, I'd say a, a, a general statement, I'm sure there's lots to unpack there, but under that, this sort of general umbrella lies lots of terms that have social implications and technical implications, terms that you mentioned like responsibility, fairness, transparency, accuracy, bias. Um, and I would say we in the paper cover all of those topics because we think they're all relevant and worth critical attention in the enterprise as well as you know in society as a whole. But I'd say the what we were trying to do and what's unique about this paper is we didn't design it as a policy paper. So it's not providing guidance to government uh, agencies or regulators to help them think about holistically sort of how to define these concepts at a, at a, at a large level so we can agree upon what they mean in society. It's also not oriented uh, specifically for a data science or machine learning practitioner audience where we would go into some of the latest and greatest research on, say, tackling fairness. Um, this one is designed for cross-functional teams that work in consumer enterprises in particular. So it's aligned with some of the work we do at Integrate. And it's meant to operationalize uh, ethics as a series of 
questions and dialogues that teams need to be asking and having at the various points in building out a machine learning product. Um, so that was sort of the approach we take. We really wanted to go from the realm of philosophy to the realm of concrete, pragmatic, what do you need to be thinking about when, what are the questions, and how do you sort of build out a framework for um, de- developing one, a company's own ethical posture in the act of applying machine learning? Yeah, and I, I'm a big fan of the use of the term operationalizing uh, AI ethics. It's been, I think, a gap that's been kind of missing in, in a lot of the conversation uh, that's been out there. There's, and you talked about some of the, the various perspectives and things that folks have done. And we've seen, you know, some of the things that I've seen that have gotten as, gotten close to, you know, providing a framework are more kind of checklisty or manifesto-ish. You, you have all these different attempts and they're all wonderful attempts, but I, I love that you're kind of, you know, pushing at, uh, a little bit more formalism without kind of diving into an academic treatise. Um, so maybe can you walk us through uh, the overall structure of, of this framework? Yeah, for sure. So we actually used the steps uh, that go into the process of building an, a machine learning system as the structure for our ethical framework. So basically we, you know, and there's, there's, there's variations on how a machine learning product might be built, but more or less companies follow the same process. So in the beginning, there's sort of a design phase where they have to ask, what problem are we actually solving? Um, And I think one of the sort of pitfalls or the failure modes, let's say, in applied machine learning in the enterprise and times where enterprises sort of get stuck is they, they, they get caught up with the innovative potential of some cool new capability and forget to ask the question, what is the business value? What is our metric for success? And how do we measure baseline performance today and an improvement upon baseline to make a judgment call uh, as to whether or not machine learning is really the right solution for our problem, right? And whether or not we want to invest in this technology in the first place. So we sort of start off with saying, giving some um, guidance and, sh- and, and insight into how to go about framing and shaping a machine learning problem in the first place. Um, next, we talk about data collection. Uh, where the data comes from, if it's coming from a product interface, how uh, how one can think about the design of that interface, both to collect uh, usable data, data that will be easier to maintain the quality of in the long term, as well as if there's data that's coming from a third party where there might be provenance issues. We talk about then um, some of the data processing, uh, depending on the different uh, algorithmic technique a company is using. This could include sort of standard feature engineering or more some of the um, the the processing to prepare for a learning representation if one moves into the deep learning sort of five things. Um, we talk about uh, how different types of algorithms uh, can present different issues as it relates to fairness, bias, and transparency. And then we talk about um, uh, putting the model into production, uh, what it means to scale, how uh, some there's some issues that can arise from sort of overfitting on a training set to extending that out to larger data sets. And then we talk a lot about what I actually think is one of the, the most interesting and underrepresented portions of fairness in machine learning systems, which is um, maintenance, uh, DevOps, um, and auditing uh, of the system in the long run. So not just when we first build out that theoretical model, but um, how we how one can maintain accountability over a system uh, over time. So that's sort of the those are the the steps that we think through. And obviously, you know, there's iterations there, and there's feedback loops, and it's never quite as um, linear as it as it seems. Um, but you know, we, that's, that's sort of how we broke things down. Monitoring and maintenance, I think is underappreciated, not just from, uh, an ethics and fairness perspective, but from a machine learning perspective in general, right? There's a lot of focus in the industry on modeling and not quite enough on, uh, getting that model into production and the care and feeding that's required to make sure that the model is, is fresh and to protect the business. Yeah, there's sort of a meta point to be made here where, you know, in this framework, we talk a lot about the interdisciplinary cross-functional questions. And this is sort of why it's framed more as a, we don't have the right answer. We can't reduce this down to a checklist where you just have to press, you know, press X button, press Y button. It's rather, this is the checklist of questions you need to ask. And the answer is going to depend upon the context. And therefore, it needs to be a collaboration between, you know, the legal team, the business team, the data team, the algorithms team, the engineering team. And 
Um, that shows up at every point in the process. But if you think about this endpoint where it's around, you know, maintenance, operationalization of systems, et cetera, there too, um, it's, it's a, you know, there's some machine learning scientists who go so far as to build modular code and then put that out and scale it into production. But most of the time, this is going to then be collaboration with what Andrew Karpathy would call software 1.0 folks who, um, you know, are, are working in a slightly different code stack and are, and are representing and modifying the initial mathematics in the models to, to turn them into scalable, reliable software. So, it's kind of all about it's all about the handoffs, the collaboration, and then finding a way to translate between two different language systems, two different modes of working to um, to to do the hard work of of, of you know making these systems uh, thrive in production. On that point of translation, you also uh, explicitly talk about uh, some of the softer topics, uh, people and communication. I don't know that you explicitly mentioned culture, but uh, I imagine that plays a big role in this as well, a huge role. Uh, can you talk a little bit about those topics? Yeah, for sure. Um, so let's break it down into two. So in thinking about culture, um, it's interesting. I recently heard DJ Patil give a talk at an ethics conference that Scotiabank hosted up here in Toronto. And he was mentioning that one of the key uh, requirements for success to deploy AI ethically is to have a channel of resistance, right? To basically almost like a, um, what are those things called where it's the, it's like the bat line, right? So it's like, it's, it's like a channel where you're allowed to dissent, right? There's sort mm -hmm. of like the accepted protocol, but somebody's somebody, people are empowered and they have the right to raise their hand and say, I don't think this is okay. Um, so that's sort of, you know, I, I think there's a huge cultural, um, uh, implication there where, um, where teams are empowered to have a voice and to think critically about what they're building and also to um, be stimulated and challenged to not just um, accept, you know, the, the base technical answer in building a machine learning model, namely that, you know, we've decided that our objective function is X, we're going to measure accuracy uh, using, you know, sort of the following, the following measures. And I guess like one of the, um, idiosyncrasies or the uncomfortable uh, paradoxes of, say, rendering a model fair is that often um, uh, to make a model fair requires a little bit of a trade-off on its accuracy if, if one is just reporting on the performance of the model in its, you know, sort of in its normally functioning fashion. And that's, that, it, it, it's, it, it comes off as counterintuitive, right? Because, like, the scientists that are building the models uh, are, are thinking about measuring their performance according to the the set of constraints that they they've learned in school and that they've been applying, and then to come into that and say, okay, we're going to actually design this so that there's a cut on accuracy, and then the question becomes, well, who makes that call? Do do, do I make that call, or does this need to be a cross-functional dialogue with like the business team? Did did they make the call on some of the trade-offs that we're going to incur if we decide to make a, a model fair as opposed to sort of more accurate? And so, um, so uh, I think the the translation questions are totally intertwined with the cultural questions because there needs to be the foundation to enable to enable these discussions to occur to to start to get traction in the first place it's not just a you know let me download my fairness module from the cloud and the next thing you know <laughs> the next thing you know everything's going to be fine there's work to try to um, to try to build out sort of open source scalable toolkits to address fairness but th it's still we're still so early in the process and there's still not even uh, alignment across the technical community on what fairness means uh, as a statistical problem. So we've got a lot of work to do to figure this out. That makes me think of a, a couple of things. This notion of a channel of resistance calls to mind um, an article that I came across yesterday, maybe, you know, very contemporary about how uh Google is experiencing, you know, internal turmoil is probably too strong, but there are very vocal kind of employee uh, factions on two sides of the issue of the company's involvement in China. And that kind of suggests in the context of this notion of a channel of resistance that uh, they have a very strong culture uh of, you know, supporting and allowing that kind of resistance, which kind of bodes well for their ability to, um, at least in this particular area, you know, support, you know, making ethical decisions around AI. Does that, uh, is that consistent with what you see? 
That's a great question. I'm I'm certainly not an expert in uh, what's going on inside Google these days. Sure, um, but I'm I not do. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But um, yeah, I think that it's interesting. My father, um, who worked in technology for 45 years, uh, he he was telling me that back in the 70s and 80s um, when he was working. There, it, it wasn't even possible for two managers to be in a room together without a director present, right? So there was so much control over what might be gossip, what might be dissent, what might be back rumblings around what mm. was going on in the company that they didn't even like culturally, it was not possible for two people to meet, which I, I have trouble even imagining, you know, it's like, it's like, well, there's always water cooler discussions, right? Of course, there would be there would be covert back channels, if not explicitly permissible back channels. But there's a difference there where, um, you know, it's, it's, like this as a as, as the organization um, coming together and explicitly sanctioning um, critical thinking, right? And explicitly explicitly empowering uh, people from the technical side and 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 as well as um, voices external to the company. So one of the things we talk about in the paper is that I think one of the failure modes in thinking about um, operationalizing ethics and uh, let's say from an organizational perspective would be let's appoint the ethics committee. Okay, well, who's on the ethics committee? And here we're thinking about large enterprises. So you can imagine it would be the chief data officer, the chief technology officer, somebody from the risk management department. And um, the question to be posed is, do the people who occupy those positions have the requisite diversity of opinion and perspective to function well as ethics officers? And often that's not the case, right? Because of um, just because of the sort of, you know, the issues in diversity and inclusion in the workforce. And so we think it's really important, not only that there's a channel of dissent, but also that um, multiple people's perspectives are brought to the table, in particular during the design phase. Um, you know, it's not necessarily, you don't need to have sort of community representatives when it comes to thinking about audit logs and trails on the on productionalization of the systems. Um but in some of the early thinking on uh, doing what we call a pre-mortem, where a team would not do a post-mortem where they've done their project and then they look backwards and say, okay, what worked, what didn't, what are we going to change? But rather taking the time to imagine prospectively some of the issues that might go wrong um, in, in applying a machine learning uh, application um, and taking that from the embodied perspective of people who are not like you know uh, some of the, you know, not, not like you, right? Not like um, uh, potentially the composition of an existing workforce. And so so we ask and pose this in the paper, um, should there be customers in that on that ethics committee? Or could it just be sort of different people's perspective within the organization? Um, another question is, and going back to who makes the call and who's accountable, there's different opinions across the community as to whether or not there needs to be a neutral third party almost auditing function who comes in and basically has, you know, has no skin in the game. And can therefore look through system design and and audit it for compliance with some ethical standard. Um, that makes sense to me, but I don't think it's enough because, as we say in the paper, if you sort of wait until the end and then go back through a system and and see where it, it might have ethical pitfalls, there's a lot of wasted time. And there's so many in the moment pragmatic decisions that technical teams can make to save themselves the trouble of say implementing a neural network when the use case requires. Um, a level of uh, interpretability and transparency given regulatory requirements, and they could have sort of just selected a different algorithm earlier on and avoided the subsequent requirement to redo to redo work to meet regulatory or ethical requirements. So maybe let's uh, walk through some of the, the the key questions that need to be asked at these different stages. Is that a good way to go through this? Do you think? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, so, uh, again, you kind of start with this notion of kind of problem definition and, and scoping. Uh, what needs to be thought about there? You, you, you just kind of talked about some of it. The way you define a problem is going to have direct implications on, I guess I'm kind of blurring the lines of, of problem definition uh, with the whole neural network thing. But uh, let me kind of roll that back and say, uh, what are some of the, the, the questions that need to be considered when we're thinking about problem definition and scope? Sure. So I'll talk about two that um, are partially just about all machine learning products and also have implications in ethics. Um, so one is how much error can the business toler- tolerate in its predictions? Um, and so as I think through this, it, it's a contextual question where you know, you can imagine Amazon using a collaborative filtering algorithm to recommend products and personalize products to its customers. 
So there, um, you know, what's the worst case scenario if Amazon recommends that I uh, buy a toilet as opposed to buying uh, Tolstoy's War and Peace? Um, I might be, I, it might be humorous. I might be like, well, this is funny. Um, it could have uh, implications. There's a couple of sort of horror stories where I believe somebody bought an urn for their, um, after their grandfather died. And then subsequently they were sort of presented with all of these morbid death trinkets. Um, so, you know, obviously that can have some emotional impact on a user, but more or less like, you know, a recommender in a commercial setting is one that can tolerate um, a relatively high level of prediction error. And therefore, you know, machine learning team doesn't need to work and work and work and work until they get to um, super high precision around accuracy recall, um, et cetera. Um, so, uh, so just thinking contextually about that is, um, uh, does have both pragmatic implications as well as ethical implications. Um, areas where I've seen this gone wrong, uh, is in use cases where, uh, a business like the end users have a psychological perception that they need to have certainty from their system. So this is classic in say auditing. And I think we talked about this in the last podcast where, um, you know, if you're a big four, consulting firm and your job is to audit 10k statements for your clients um you know there's there's not a lot of error that can be tolerated in those predictions because the whole name of the game is to assure uh whatever that may be at least from you know from our psychological perspectives that yes indeed this 10k statement is in compliance with the general acceptable account accounting principles right so um so that's these these fundamental questions in the output of machine learning algorithms which aren't deterministic. Um, they can vary over time. Um, but that, you know, that this power broadens the applicability of what we can do with software systems today in such amazing ways um, can have impact, uh, can have ethical impact if certain users of your population are not as well represented in a data set and therefore the performance on the algorithm as it relates to the the accuracy of predictions for products or services or whatever, um, you know, whatever for them is, is, is less sound than a population that's better represented. Um, one of the other ones that I really like to think about actually was inspired by Jonathan Zunger in his super awesome article, Asking the Right Questions About AI, um, where he talks about how rigorous and precise we need to be in determining what our objective function actually optimizes for. So he gives the example, you know, the much cited example from the ProPublica um, recidivism prediction algorithms, where... Um, the impression that the end users of the system had, uh, the, the, you know, the judges, was that this system would tell them the likelihood that somebody would recommit a crime as a function of the sentence that was given to them. So if they're given a five-year sentence, you know, low likelihood. If it's a two-year sentence, they haven't been punished enough, and there's, there's a high likelihood they're still going to they're, they're gonna come back and recidivize. Um, what he shows in that, in that, in that article that is so deftly done is that what the system actually measures is the likelihood of conviction, which is a very different problem, right? So it becomes clear to us that it's like, oh God, well, of course, African-Americans are going to have a higher likelihood based on you know, past precedent. And so I see that all over the place in businesses too, where um, a business team might think that they are optimizing for, let's say, long-term revenue from a credit card customer. When actually, if you look at how the algorithm has been designed, it's just plain old conversion. So they're not actually trying to get great customers. They're just trying to get more, more customers. And that has both business impact because, um, you know, you might be getting a lot of customers, but that might not actually lead to long-term revenue. And it has ethical impact because the customers that you end up converting might not actually be sort of like well-served by the lines of credit that are given to them. And therefore, just being precise on sort of where we're, what our target variable is and what the implications are and optimizing for that, because, um, again, both business considerations as well as ethical considerations. That calls to mind a podcast that I did with Romer Rosales, who is uh, director of AI at LinkedIn. And that one was called Problem Formulation for Machine Learning. Uh, and the example that, that they gave that was really interesting was... You know, some system that they had a, a recommendation system or like uh, something about groups, I think, that kind of optimized around uh, engagement. And they, you know, their first versions of this system found that, hey, if we send more emails, people will be more engaged. Um, but it didn't really capture kind of the quality of the engagement that they were looking for or the notion that they can piss people off uh, by sending too many emails. Uh, and the big takeaway there that I found interesting was that uh, 
while this problem formulation, even in your model, is kind of the, the first step, uh, it's a very iterative process, right? You start someplace, you uh, experiment, you learn, and then you can continue to evolve the way uh, you define the problem and the, the nuance uh, that you incorporate into that problem definition to kind of more closely zero in on what's really important. I really love that you're saying that it's an iterative process and it's absolutely right. Um, so, you know, I mentioned earlier on these pre-mortems where we try to imagine what might go wrong, but the world is always much more complex than our measly imaginations can capture. And so it is really important that, you know, you go in with a certain amount of assumptions and then, and then we learn. Um, and we learn not only, it's not only about the algorithm learning um, and improving its performance by, you know, updating its parameters, et cetera, but about our paying careful, critical attention to all of the assumptions, the sort of baked in assumptions that we weren't aware of until we put things out in the world. Um, it, it's, it's, it's funny. Uh, in, Nick Bostrom has the famous anecdote about the paperclip maximizer. in <laughs> right. um, So if folks aren't familiar with that. It's basically, you know, we designed the system that's optimized to create, I think it's create as many paperclips as possible or in the fastest amount of time. I can't remember exactly how it's formulated, but it leads to this, you know, it, the, the algorithm realizes iteration after iteration that, humans are the blocker in paperclip production. So it's like, all right, let's exterminate the humans. And then we can just mine all the aluminum in the world to our, to our heart's delight. Um, and when I first read that, I was sort of like, oh God, like it's, it, it, it pricked up my um, sensitivity around what I consider to be the sort of dangerous discussions around existential risk from AI. But the more I think about it, if you view it as a fable, it's a powerful fable because as you just described, um, optimizing for engagement, optimizing for some, some, localizable, measurable, um, you know, variable, observable variable um, can have drastic implications that we're not aware of. And what I like about the, you know, the iteration is it needn't be that we succumb to the all powerful paperclip maximizer if we are aware of the fact that there are risks in our reducing down the world to a quantitative, measurable, optimizable frame. But then keeping our lights in our eyes open as we learn to to know that this is indeed a reduction to know that these systems are are not super intelligent you know their correlation uh, gradient descent um uh you know search search space optimizers right <laughs> um so um that and that's it uh and you know and obviously there's incredible progress going on in the research community but um if we if we humble ourselves and humble our interpretation and actually realize how limited these systems can be, then it forces us to open our minds to think about the critical questions we need to ask from a values perspective as we and, and, and to empower ourselves operationally through, you know, through these like this iterative learning um, to to fix things. Um, that's hard for consumer enterprises and particular regulated enterprises because they don't tolerate mistakes. There's, um, you know, a, the, the whole culture uh, around risk management is around like absolute prevention of of a, a bad outcome, um, ad adherence to compliance standards, and that mindset, like a compliance mindset and a waterfall oriented legal risk management mindset, uh, comes into a lot of tension and friction with a sort of iterative learning. Let's fail, but then we'll you know we'll rectify things. Um, uh, approach that is often required for machine learning. Right, right, yeah, and it also. Uh, echoes very strongly back to the kind of the sixth sixth step in your process, this monitoring and maintenance. If you're not monitoring uh, the, the resource consumption of your paperclip maker uh, and its secondary implications, you can't really uh, effectively refine problem definition in the next iteration. Yeah, my VP of engineering will be delighted to know that, uh, you know, I sort of I used to be really bored by things like logging, you know, measurement. I was like, oh, God, <laughs> this is the most boring stuff. I want to think about like algorithms and math. And now I am I'm endlessly fascinated. I have, I have a lot of respect for the, the the technical specifications and the rigor that goes in that, that goes into building an auditable system. Um, I'll give you an example of one of the problems we've been thinking about. So um, in the wake of GDPR, we're working in Canada. And so there's still some questions related to how the privacy regulations might be updated um, in keeping with, you know, what happened in the European Union and then sort of discussions around the globe around the appropriate privacy frameworks. But the, the more progressive enterprises are acting as if GDPR were international and global. And so one of our customers we had a, was thinking about 
storing predictions. So, you know, build out a machine learning model. It's in the marketing space. So it's recommending which, uh, which offer, which action would be the next best action or offer for different customers. And, um, you know, when that prediction is made, there's the data that went in to train the model, but then there's, you know, the, the output uh, of the model at a given moment in time. And so we were thinking, what if sometime in the future, you know, uh, right now we're November 29, 2018. What if on April 11th, 2019, a customer has a question about why they were served some particular offer, you know, back six months ago. Um, and so, you know, how, how would one resolve that if the model is indeed updating over time? And if the output of a, you know, the output of a prediction in April is going to be different than it was um, in November. And so just keeping that log, right, not only thinking about logging data, not only thinking about sort of logging, you know, anomalies in the system, but indeed logging this derived data that, you know, GDPR would call a profile. Um, or some sort of, you know, some some probabilistic output of a person's likelihood to act on something. It's it's just like there's a new data category that uh, companies need to think about when they're, you know, when they're when they're logging things and they're thinking about auditing their systems. So we should probably move through this list a little bit more quickly. Um, number two is design. Uh, what? Uh, let, let's talk about that. Uh, that phase with regard to the the questions that it should be prompting. Yeah, so we were thinking about design here from a front end uh, perspective. So it's a it's a big term, but we were sort of narrowed it down to designing product interfaces. Um, and the questions that we think about here are a lot around how you collect data, uh, both so that you are um, reducing some of the ambiguities. <laughs> if a question is hard for a person to ask, uh, people are probably going to give answers that lead to low quality data, um, as well as some of the representational harm that the way in which data formats are presented could cause to people. So an example I like here is um, gender. So right now, I think Facebook has 73, and I could be off on the precise number, but I believe it's 73 different gender categories. Um, when, when there's 73 different categories, that shows that the variable is continuous and not discrete, right? So um, if there are two or if there are five categories, and we can easily be like, I'm one of these five, um, it's probably discrete. But here, it, it's it's this strange um, mapping of something that is, uh, it's hazy, right? It's continuous. Um, and and nonetheless, our systems, we need to put them into a tabular format. And that it, it leads to these interesting representational questions uh, underneath the scenes. And then the third thing we think about in design is, is, there, is this a human in the loop system or is this a completely automated system? Because there's different legal um, and liability questions associated with uh, either approach. And so is there, as part of this, does the cross-functional aspect of uh, this framework get represented in the design phase? Do, do, do you need to be, um, you know, I guess I'm thinking of, uh, and in fact, I, I think I remember reading in the paper, you kind of referring to agile ethics or agile, uh, the agile word agile came up somewhere. Uh, and this in particular kind of calls to mind the whole, you know, um, do design with your customers from, uh, you know, traditional software development, agile, applications. Yeah. Uh, so I, I quoted the term agile ethics from Alex Dunn, who uh, is the executive director of a company called the engine room based in the UK. Um, I think she's fantastic. Um, and I heard her actually she had a blog post about the term agile ethics that came out during access now's um, rights con conference in Toronto in May. And I met her there and I was just like, Oh my God, I love it. That's exactly what I'm thinking about. And so it's funny. I've used the term agile ethics at the bank and the, the, what this does not mean is that like, you know, we can sort of update our principles on a day-to-day -day basis. So one day fairness means, you know, equality of opportunity. And the next day it's uh, equity of outcome, right? Um, that's, that, that is not what I mean by agile ethics. What I, what we mean is that, um, you know, ethics need not be that one time, final compliance review of a system, it should be embedded into the phases of an agile product development methodology. Um, and then the second is, yeah, as it relates to design. So uh, this is going to be the, the front end of the system. Um, consent um, is a big question here. So in thinking about, you know, how are you going to represent a consent mechanism to your customer? Is it going to be, as we know, the sort of standard tacit, you know, here's a 50, 55 page legal document that nobody reads, but in order to play part in society and the system, you just sort of tacitly accept it? Or is there a way to represent it in a in a friendly, so not a, like not sort of cumbersome way, um, but to make privacy a little bit more legible um, and meaningful to users now that we we care about it? Uh, I think I think it's 
it's it's heartening to see that more and more people are seeming to care about it um, in the wake of you know some of the privacy breaches that have occurred in over the past year. So speaking of privacy breaches, data collection and retention. Yeah, um, <laughs> these are big issues here, uh, and in fact, probably. You know, th- this is this is maybe an area that's more obvious to people when they're thinking about uh, responsible AI and ethics, or at least it, you know, comes up frequently, right? Because from a, a privacy perspective, is is it broader than people tend to think? I think I think if it is broader, it's that um, often problems that we associate to ethics in ML and algorithms actually start with data. Um, And so, you know, uh, I think by now, it's pretty well understood that it's garbage in, garbage out. So, you know, if you've got a data set, and you've got awesome representation of rich Caucasian males, and very scant representation of um, not rich uh, African American females, then, you know, the the performance of your algorithm is going to vary across those across those represented sets. Um, so I think uh, what's what's tough is actually is actually solving this, um, you know, in such a way where companies think about modifying how they are collecting data and how they're storing it, so so as to sort of address this problem at its at its roots and its foundation. Um, it's like it's one thing to note that it's a problem; it's another thing to go through the changes required to like update your data collection and retention procedures. I think the other one is um, from a risk management perspective and information governance. Um, prior to ML, the sort of rule of thumb would be: if you don't need the data, delete it. Do you know what I mean? There's, there's of course, staff. Or you don't need a, a particular attribute as well. You don't need an attribute. It. Yeah. And if you don't, yeah. And if you don't and think about email, um, like email retention. So mm-hmm. like in the information governance community, there's going to be, uh, in, in discovery and, and, uh, evidence and production requirements. That mean that for a certain period of time, you know, things need to be saved and stored in case there's some question in case, um, you know, in case, uh, files need to be reviewed. But once you're outside of that, it's just like, God, get rid of it. Um, obviously it's cheaper to store uh, massive data at scale now. So that's the, the sort of the economics of that have shifted a lot over the past uh, 20 years. Um, but from an ML perspective, um, I, this came up once in a discussion with a financial services firm that wanted to capture uh, seasonal irregularities or seasonal regularities across multiple years in, uh, in a particular domain. And if the retention folks, uh, going back to cross-functional collaboration, say, delete after year three, and then the machine learning folks come in and they say, Oh no no no! But we don't want to overfit to you know the rec- recency. We want to actually have sort of a, a more historical view. There can be um, misaligned objectives, I'd say, in terms of uh, you know what to retain and what not to retain. Yeah, I was just having, having a conversation with uh, a manufacturer in the transportation industry, and they were talking about, or we were talking about cultural implications and culture clashes, kind of along these lines. And the same exact issue came up. They're collecting all of the the sensor data about you know how their vehicles are being used and their retention people are telling them to you know throw it away and um you know to do things like uh kind of early anonymization and they are they recognize that uh they don't really know what the potential future value of this data is and how they may want to use it and they're kind of digging in, I guess, for, for lack of a better term, to kind of fight this long fight to try to shift this culture or at least come to, you know, some happy medium. Um, and I don't know that there's any formula <laughs> for doing that. You know, I, uh, I recently became obsessed with uh, an anecdote about Henry Ford, who as a byproduct of his work creating cars, uh, he, he set up a bunch of sawmills in Michigan. And uh, he, he invested in the sawmills so, so that he could reduce this bottlenecks in his supply chain for wood um, so that he could you know, make steering wheels and baseboards, et cetera, for the cars a lot faster. And in doing so, he had all this, these stumps and branches and sawdust, like all this leftover wasted wood stuff. And so he uh, ended up uh, combining the wood with tar to create charcoal briquettes and created an, a separate business line that has now become Kingsford Charcoal, which is still in existence today. I did not know that Henry Ford was the father of Kingsford Charcoal. And what I love about that 
story is I actually think it helps us sort of rewrite history in thinking about the legacy of Henry Ford for the data era, where we thought about, you know, the like Henry Ford is all about um, automation and the assembly line and reducing and squeezing out every ounce of variable cost from production systems to scale. Um, but like for the data era and the machine learning era, uh, what's interesting about business processes is that they are unique vehicles to create data and knowledge about the world that only exists by uh, as, as a byproduct of the activity of doing that work. And, um, you know, for me, that this is sort of the how do you really a lot of enterprises struggle with um, disruptive innovation in AI. It's kind of like, OK, we'll optimize something. OK, we're going to automate an existing job. But like, is this it? Is this all we get here is cost savings from AI? And it's like, not if you do this creative shift in the value of your business process and start to create a unique information asset. Um, however, as you just said, uh, doing that uh, shifts around, you know, how, how we think about data and, and, and how we retain it. And when that data is created, you know, Henry Ford, uh, he didn't, it, the wood itself did not suggest charcoal briquettes. It was human ingenuity that combined <laughs> tar with the wood to create a new business line. And, and similarly, it's like, all right, so where does human creativity lie in this whole AI equation? Well, uh, the data itself is is not worth much. Uh, it takes our designing, our framing, our applying the right algorithm, our lining up the right backend architecture to scale this to to create value. And um, you know that's not an ethical point. That's more of a strategic point. But I think it's it's like the essence of innovation with AI. When it comes to uh, beyond the the retention of the data, when it comes to processing the data, that also has huge ethical implications. Uh, can you talk through some of the, the areas that you explore uh, around processing? I think the most salient point here has to do with the paradox, a paradox of interpretability. So we tend to think that um, linear regressions are more interpretable and, and easier to control and govern than deep neural networks because it's easier for us to align you know, which um, input, which feature with which weight is uh, correlated to which output, right? Um, and we say, okay, we feel like we have control over that. That's interpretable. What I think is happening there, and it's a risk that we haven't really thought enough about, is that we're actually displacing the um, lack of transparency from the machine to the person's mind. So when a, a scientist and practitioner comes in and analyzes the data and decides you know, which features to focus on um, and when they're building out their, their model, there's there's lots of opportunity there for bias of some sort to inflect, uh, you know, which features ends up, end up being featured. Um, sorry, a little bit of fun, which features matter. Which features they select. <laughs> um, part of that will be from analytic uh, observation. Um, you know, it will, it will live within the data, but there, there's just so much room, um, you know, for, for human bias to come in and be shaping the choices that are made in selection of features uh, without our being aware of that. And so that's, for me, that's sort of this, it's an, it's, a, it's, it's an overlooked aspect of data processing that makes us think a little bit more critically about this whole notion of sort of transparency and interpretability. And it's one where you have to sort of gut check yourself and be like, um, you know, are we, are we imposing our biases here? Um, the other thing I talk about, and I think this could be a podcast on its own has to do with um some of the uh, ways to think about data privacy in a machine learning first world where we're sort of shifting from protecting the, a, a data point, so personally identifiable information in the form of my name, my address, my social security number, to obfuscating an individual within a distribution. So if you think about sort of, you know, we've got 15 people in a room, how tall is everybody? What's the average height? Um, it would be, you know, the extent to which one individual is contributing to um, to that mean and the standard deviation from the mean. And so this is the realm of sort of differential privacy in ways in which we can make it so that you can't reverse engineer an individual from sort of a, a large distribution. So that's there's a whole section in there on that. Um, but again, I think it's a topic for another podcast. And talking about uh, the way we feature our features, you suggested that one of the the dangers is imparting our biases into the, the models by the way we uh, do feature engineering and the like. But it also prompted this question for me around, you know, is there this other paradox that, you know, there's this class of models that we think of as transparent and so we don't question them as much, whereas there's this other class of models that we think of as 
opaque and we spend a lot of energy trying to understand them. Is there a risk there? I think so. I think it goes back to, it's almost like the, the Nick Bostrom point where um, it's the risk of focusing a lot of our attention on, on, on the one area that's been sort of um, talked about, like that's been discursively accepted as like, this is where the risk lies. Um, and people should be working on that. Like the, all of the work that's going into interpretability of neural networks is incredibly exciting and important work. Um, uh, however, um, it, I think there's a, there's a larger point that relates to even sort of the social stratus of, and the social like importance of different type classes of algorithms in the community. That doesn't mean that, uh, linear regressions, um, logistic regressions, support vector machines don't have their ethical issues too. And it also doesn't mean that they're not worthy uh, mathematical functions, you know, for, for systems. Um, uh, at Fast Forward Labs, we always used to say, you know, when you're applying ML, start with the simplest possible algorithm possible to solve your problem that can scale. And then once you've gotten baseline performance, then maybe experiment up with sort of uh, some of the more complex models that can process hierarchical features and represent the data a little differently. But, you know, don't start with um, the hammer when all that you need is sort of a chisel. Um, so, um, so yeah, so I think that, I think there's a larger sociological point wrapped up in your question as it relates to the sort of hierarchy sometimes of, um, of like perceived value in the scientific and engineering community, um, that, uh, you know, where, and actually, and this shows up in the paper, um, I, I, in my experience, finding a lawyer, (laughs) people talk a lot about the sort of scarcity of PhDs and machine learning, Finding a lawyer who knows a lot about the law and also knows a lot about um, how machine learning systems work so that they can pave new ground in thinking about how regulations should evolve or how compliance practices should evolve to encompass like the realities of new technical problems at a deep level and not just a sort of a conceptual level. Mm-hmm. Those people are really hard to find. Um, wow. And I feel like they're, they're heroes whose song needs to be sung a little more, you know? So in the, the next step in your framework, that, which looks at model prototyping and QA testing, does this go beyond the model evaluation, the, the I guess the statistical aspects of modeling, or is, is that the focus a lot of it is around the statistics. So Q&A, you know, is this um, basically testing control, um, uh, you know, having your test set, having your validation set, seeing if, seeing how the model performs. And I think the particular ethical aspect of it has to do with subsampling um, areas of the model. So not just doing sort of holistic, you know, how is this performing, but rather are there pockets of a population where the model seems to be performing well at the, at, you know, sort of at the, for the majority group. But if you look at the minority, the performance is opposite. So this is often referred to as Simpson's paradox. So it's sort of a, a particular um, fine-grained comb on Q&A with an eye towards potential um, fairness and bias pitfalls. Um, and then some of the other, one of the other things we bring up in the Q&A testing um, are inspired by some of the work that Ian Goodfellow, who I know has been on the podcast, has done as it relates to um, basically tricking a model, a malicious actor tricking a model into um, thinking, well, thinking, uh, uh, metaphorical term, into um, a, uh, from uh, a, a QA tester's vantage point seeming to perform well according to the standards um, that we're you know, measuring the model's performance by when actually it's been tricked into doing a misclassification or doing something, you know, or, or, ha- or having the wrong output. Your first point makes me think of kind of ethical unit tests for models. Have you come across a a scalable framework for doing that or does it not require anything special? I personally haven't seen it, but I wouldn't be surprised if someone's working on that. Um, And I I like the term. You should should like (laughs) that. (laughs) I know we're running out of time, but the sixth step in the framework is deployment, monitoring, and maintenance. We've talked about it a little bit already. Anything you want to add there? I'd say the only, we've talked about it a lot. Um, I'd, you know, advise folks to have a look at the paper if they're interested in it. Um, and then I guess the one thing has to do with documentation. So not just sort of the, you know, the auditing and logging controls in the system itself, um, as well as all the, you know, proper DevOps on the tool, but also um, the, you know, the hard work of documenting what choices were made, when, why. Um, and there's questions around whether or not that's a sort of internal uh, technical compliance tool, internal sort of cross-functional compliance tool, or also could be something that is presented then to end users so that they, um, you know, in a friendly, with friendly language, so that if they have questions around the transparency of a system, 
Um, you know, they, there's, there's communication on uh, how frequently the model is updated, if it's possible to remove, uh, you know, if somebody decides to opt out of a system, um, what the retraining cycles for the models entail, and sort of a guarantee. Uh, we, there's, there's a, a section in the paper where we say, well, what if you were to get a, a confirmation if you opt out of some uh, data collection mechanism and a machine learning algorithm associated with it, that's like, model's been retrained, you're removed. You're no longer part of this, you know, you're, you're, you've been forgotten by the system. Um, that might be overly cumbersome, but it's, you know, it's something we propose uh, as, as food for thought. We've talked quite a bit about the paper. Is it easy for folks to find? I just pulled up the integrate.ai site and it didn't jump out at me. Uh, maybe we can set up a place where people can kind of easily go to grab it. Yeah, you bet. If you go on the integrate AI site, there's a, um, there's a, a tool, like a, a button or whatever called trust. And it's under that trust um, button and there's a page for responsible AI. But um, we can uh, definitely find a way to make it a little bit easier to find. There's a there's a website that has that's like devoted to it in particular um, or a sub page on our website. But it's accessible through the Integrate AI website under the trust tab. OK, got it. I see it. Uh, easy enough. Uh, any kind of final thoughts or words of wisdom? Yeah, I'd say just to sum things up, um, you know, there's so much attention uh, paid to ethics these days. I think it's wonderful that we're having these large discussions around um, AI in society and that this technology is is encouraging us to question our values so holistically. However, as we started off, there's there's still so much work to do in taking this from sort of the philosophy, the domain of philosophy and the domain of fun conversations at dinner parties into practical operational decisions and you know the what we were trying to do here is to is to show that often ethics occurs in the trenches right it's like it's the decisions that teams make in their building systems they're hard to make um and and they require accountability and decision rights and it's within that tension that we think that um we can really do some work to change things so so the call to action is to is to not only talk about these issues but to think really critically about how to put them into practice well, Catherine, thank you so much. Always wonderful to speak with you. We need to find a way to do it more often. Uh, thanks for being on the show. Totally concur. It's great to talk to you, Sam. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.